chapter <laughs> is to understand how important it is to be free from anything that would hold you back from serving the Lord. It might even mean letting go of something that you're entitled to or that you feel that you deserve or maybe you do deserve this. In our last chapter, in chapter 8, Paul was encouraging, as you remember, the Corinthian Christians to let go of their right to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols if it would help someone else. And we talked about how we can let go of certain things if those things that we're holding on to are hurting somebody else's walk with the Lord. So this chapter will be speaking of letting go, Paul will be speaking of letting go of his really apostolic rights to further the gospel. Letting go of certain things that he feels that he is absolutely, and not even just feels, he is entitled to, letting go of those things in order to do what God has called him to do. Yet, in letting go of those things, it doesn't mean that he is any less of an apostle. One thing, too, today for you to be aware of is today's study is going to be lending a little bit of a different perspective or, uh, on what we're typically used to seeing as churchgoers. Different in the fact that you're going to see things from the spiritual leader's perspective in the church. You're going to see kind of the things from the other end of the church, so to speak. And how the church can be sensitive to the needs of their pastor, or in this case, the needs of the Apostle Paul. I can tell you, it's such a sweet thing when the church loves their pastor. I feel like I was like that with my pastor, Chuck, who is now in heaven. That you love your pastor, and I just wanted to look out for him, and uh, I, I wanted to take care of those things that were needed. And growing up there and serving there, you wanted to hold his hands up and help him. And it was a cool thing, because not everybody's like that. I grew up really having the privilege, I would say, to serve alongside with Pastor Chuck the last nine years of his life. And I wanted to see him taken care of. He labored in the Word. Most people don't even realize how spiritually attacked that he was and his family endured so much and so many things that, that we had no idea went on behind the scenes and the pressure and these things that are just really, I thought, uncomprehendable. I felt blessed to be able to hold his arms up. And so now Paul says in verse 1, and this leads us to point number 1, and you're going to see this broken down, is Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle. And he says in verse 1, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? And are you not my work in the Lord? So right away in verse 1, you've noticed that Paul has asked four rhetorical questions. The first being, am I not an apostle? Now, there is actually criteria for being an apostle. Now, today you'll see people around and they'll say, I'm the apostle or I am a, an apostle. Not just anyone could be an apostle. In order to be an apostle, according to the biblical standards of such a thing, there were two things you needed to have participated in. Number one is you needed to have been personally commissioned by Jesus. Face to face, you needed to have seen him and his resurrected form. So you needed to have been commissioned by Jesus and you need to have seen him after being resurrected from the dead. Paul could check both of those boxes. 
Back in Acts chapter 9, you remember Paul, who was formerly known as Saul. He was on the road to Damascus. He was arresting Christians, throwing them into prison. He was even, remember when the first martyr was ever recorded in church history, Stephen. As they were stoning him to death, the guys that were stoning him to death laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is the same man who we know as Paul. So Paul... On his road to Damascus, on his way on the road to Damascus, he encountered Jesus face to face. You can read about it in the book of Acts. But not only that, he was commissioned by Jesus to arise and to go into the city and then to do what he had called him to do. So he says, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? And you know your Bibles and so you say, yes, you are an apostle. You have seen Jesus Christ the Lord. And he says to the Corinthians, are you not my work in the Lord? Are you not the work that God has called me to do? Are you not the very present, uh, the very fact that you are alive and in this church? He's saying, you are my work that God has called me to do. See, the Corinthians knew Jesus because Paul shared with them about him. The Corinthians were being taught God's word because Paul was teaching them. The Corinthians were being counseled. They were being encouraged. They were being ministered to. They were being instructed, loved by, built up by the man that God had called to minister to them. And that man was none other than Paul the Apostle. He says, are you not my work in the Lord? You guys are my business. My life's work and you guys knowing the Lord better means that I'm accomplishing what God has called me to do. And he says, if I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless, verse 2, I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Your very lives, your very lives, and the powerful impact of the work of the Holy Spirit in you is a testimony to the fact that God has called me. That's what he's saying. Look what the Lord has done in you. Look what the Lord has, has brought to, to life in areas that your life was dead and now you're forgiven and you're cleansed and you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Are you not the work? Are you not the seal of my apostleship, he says. He says, furthermore, there's a special relationship that they had. They knew him personally. He was their leader. He was Paul the Apostle. He didn't have this type of relationship with everyone, but he had it with them. Now, in verse 2 where he says, you're my seal of apostleship. Now, many of you may have seen this from that original film, Ben-Hur. You've seen it from other uh, Roman-era films, talking about seals. When a letter was sent by a courier, the author would endorse the letter, often with the use of melted wax on the envelope and a signet ring. You know this seal? Like this. You would know the letter was legitimate by the seal that was upon it. Paul wrote again to the Corinthians, and we'll get to this in 2 Corinthians. He says in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 2 through 3, he says, You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle or a letter of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. That is of the heart. Where it wasn't about a religiosity or a a, 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 a really like a, a behavior modification kind of a thing where you're trying to be a better person. It's like, look at your life. It's changed. Look at who you used to be. 
Look at who you are now. Look at the path that you were on and where your friends ended up and look at where you're at now. Look at what God has done. The very fact that God has changed your life and He has written His Word on your heart. You are that living letter, that letter that is being read around the world that God still works in man's life. God still works. He still changes. He still forgives. This is an amazing thing. Now, the same type of thing would apply with pastors in their churches. The same type of thing could be with you and, and with me. And now, right off the bat, know that I'm not saying that I'm an apostle, nor do I ever intend on being one. Because you'd be like, heresy! Or whatever it might be, no. But as a pastor, the very fact that you're here this morning is the seal that God has called me to be here. Because before this building was ever built, and before any of you were here and knew each other, God had called me to plant this church, living in Orchard Hills apartment homes right there on Portola. And this was all just avocado trees, or, or just the orchards, literally, Orchard Hills. And there I am with Ruth, standing outside of our clubhouse, and we look at each other as newlyweds back in 2007, and I look at her and I said, we should plant a church here one day. I don't think I had any idea what the Lord was actually putting in my heart at that time. But I can tell you right now, if nobody ever ended showing up to the church, then it would have been a different story altogether. I can tell you honestly, straight from my heart, that it's so much better that you're here. <laughs> because if you weren't here, I wouldn't be here. And then you probably would say, well, I don't think you're called to plant a church in Orchard Hills, Garrett, because you don't have anybody in your church. Well, I got the family room. Ruth, come over here, you know, or whatever it might be, you know. But a little behind the scenes of the pastor or the spiritual leader, and this is important, I think, for all of us to know, the enemy loves to work in the area of getting you to question what God has called you to do. So yes, that affects ministers. It affects Christians that are following after the Lord. In particular, if Satan can get the pastor to be discouraged or to doubt his calling, he has succeeded in a major way. I don't know if you've seen this floating around on the internet, Instagram, uh, these statistics for men in the ministry. Now, very, very interesting. It says 97% of pastors have been betrayed, falsely accused, or hurt by their trusted friends. 70% of pastors battle depression. 7,000 churches close each year. 1,500 pastors quit each month. 10% will retire a pastor. 80% of pastors feel discouraged. 94% of pastors' families feel the pressure of ministry. 78% of pastors have no close friends, and 90% of pastors report working 55 to 75 hours per week. Now, serving with other pastors and knowing other pastors from different churches, there are a lot of similarities in the kind of spiritual attack that takes place, because some people are extremely critical of pastors and say some pretty unkind things. Everything from 
you know, I've heard, uh, I just don't get anything out of your messages to, I just don't like your face. Uh, to which I reply, I'm sorry, that's why I grew a beard. I don't know what you want me to do. I remember one time back in the day, a guy told me how much he absolutely loved my study that I taught at Monday nights uh, at Costa Mesa back in the day. He proceeded to tell me that he leaves each week right after worship and just before I teach. And I was like, that's great, man. Awesome. And so there are people that are critical unintentionally, and there are some people that say things that are not nice intentionally. But they're examining you, and they're trying to find something maybe to blast you for. And Paul the Apostle was not the exception to the rule when it came to criticism. And that's why he wrote what he wrote in verse 3. He says, my defense to those who examine me is this. In the Greek language, the word defense is apologia, where we get our word apologetics from. This is actually a legal term uh, that would be used in Roman courts, and it means really to give an answer or a verbal defense, a reason, statement, or argument. My defense or my argument against those that are examining me or judging me or interrogating me or investigating me is this. And Paul obviously felt that his apostleship was on trial. People were critiquing him. He was Paul the Apostle. Thus he used these words that were associated with Roman law. And there were certain entitlements to apostles. And look at verse 4. He says, do we have no right to eat and drink? Verse 5. Do we have no right to take along a believing wife as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? So, Speaking to his disciples, as he sent them out to minister to the gospel, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, this is what Jesus told his disciples, nor bag for, he says, do not take a bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. In Luke 10 verse 8, he told his disciples, Jesus speaking, this is what's called a cross-reference or something that will help us understand this more fully. Luke 10 verse 8 says, whatever city... Jesus told his disciples, you enter, eat such things that are set before you. Eat such things that are set before you. So a worker is worthy of his food, and that also goes for Christian workers whose occupation is the, men, is the ministry. I remember in my early days of ministry, I was doing college campus ministry, and I happened to be at Cal State Fullerton. And we were, you know, sharing the gospel with people and trying to talk to the students about Jesus. And I remember when I was asked, like, okay, well, tell me a little bit about you. And I said, all right, well, you know, I, I went to school in Huntington Beach. I played basketball. I got a scholarship. I moved to Hawaii. I lived in Hawaii. I loved surfing. I lived there for a while. And the moment that I said that I loved surfing, this woman, a uh, young woman, she was probably 19 or 20, a little bit younger than me at the time, and says, I thought you said you were a pastor. See, her mind was just absolutely blown that I was a pastor that liked surfing. I don't think you can be a pastor because pastors don't surf. And you just see her eyes, and she was just like, ah, ah. And I thought you were a pastor. So why aren't you remaining single that you might serve the Lord and not be concerned with the things pertaining to a wife? 
I thought you were a pastor, so what in the world are you doing eating food and drinking? What is happening here? You should be fasting every single day. This is what he's defending in verses 4 and 5. Would you look at those verses again with me, just in that context? Do we have no right to eat and drink as an apostle? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife? Like, does that mean that I can't be married as do also the other apostles and the brother, brothers of the Lord and Cephas? As a side note, I think it's interesting that he mentions Cephas or Peter. The Catholics call Peter the first pope and the position requires celibacy. But Peter was evidently married. And we know this to be true as well. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 through 15, it says, When Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. He saw Peter's mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. So Jesus touched her hand and the fever left her. And she arose and served them. So Peter was obviously married. And it seemed that he had a good relationship with his wife because he had a good relationship with his mother-in-law. And that was important. Not everybody has that. And I know from this text in Matthew that Peter definitely had a good relationship with his mother-in-law. I consider that I have a good relationship with my mother-in-law. But I know for sure Peter did because when Jesus was about to heal her, he didn't say, Lord, what are you doing? Don't do that, you know? So he did. But he was obviously married. He was obviously married, and that's what Paul is talking about here. And just because Paul doesn't have a wife, as we know from the previous studies, that he once was married, and for some reason we don't see his wife mentioned. There was speculation about whether she left him when he became a Christian, or she died, or whatever. But Paul was not married, but does that mean that he doesn't have the right to take a wife as the other apostles? Does that mean because he's not married, he has less of an apostle or less spiritual if he were to take a wife he says in verse 6 or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working so how about this I thought you were a pastor so what are you doing taking days off I thought you were a pastor so why are you surfing why are you eating why are you having time with your family I thought you were a pastor, so what in the world are you doing going to your son's baseball game on Saturday mornings? Listen, God rested from his work on the seventh day. He said it was good, and God rested. But Paul is establishing these two facts under this first point called Paul the Apostle. He has all the freedom of apostolic rights. Secondly, he, is also, he has also the right to choose whether or not to exercise those rights. Hey, if I want to eat or drink, I get to make that decision. If I want to go exercise, I get to make that decision. If I want to spend time with my wife, I get to make that decision. If I get to have a day off, then that's okay too. So Paul the Apostle, and that leads us to verse 7, which is now point number 2, is Paul the laborer. He says in verse 7, Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? You know, in Hawaii, we had this thing called the Kama'aina. It was the Kama'aina rate. Um, if you've ever been to Hawaii, you know what, what that's about. It was basically, he who planted the tree should be able to eat of its fruits. Being like, you're a local, you live here, you get a discounted rate, not the Haole rate, not the tourist rate. And 
He says, whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? See, part of being a minister of the gospel meant being supported by the people that you were ministering to. The first thing that he says here, who goes to war at his own expense, we proudly support the troops of the United States of America in all branches, retired, active, and reserved. How ridiculous would it be for a United States Marine Corps member to have to pay his own airfare to Afghanistan or have to pay for his uniform or his weapons or his ammo or to have to pay for his food and lodging while he's serving the country? That's the point that he's making here. Who goes to war at his own expense? The next thing we saw is who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Someone buys and plants a tree, waters it, tills it, in the ground cultures it, And yet when the fruit arrives, doesn't get to eat of it? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do you see where Paul's going with this? Paul planted this church and nourished it in order for it to grow. He is working for the church and serving it, yet is he not entitled to be supported by it? On the contrary, he actually is entitled and should be supported by the church. Or, or does Paul need to start setting up pricing breakdowns for counseling. You know, we joke about it, too, when somebody says, hey, Gary, can you come and do uh, our, our wedding? And they, they say, how much do you charge? How much do you charge to do a wedding? And I said, well, that depends which package you want. Do you want the silver, gold, or platinum? <laughs> no, and I said, of course not. I don't charge to do your wedding. Uh, no, no possible way. I mean, could you imagine that, how, how silly that would seem, you know? Uh, Hey, hey, Pastor Gary, can you pray for me? Sure. Um, you know, would you like to purchase a minute prayer or a two-minute prayer or a five-minute prayer? Would he need to start charging for Sunday sermons on top of the entrance fee as uh, others provide services? Uh, we have an entrance fee on top of uh, what's going to be taking place here today. <laughs> How ridiculous. I was just thinking about this. How weird would it be if we had a couple of our big guys standing with a velvet rope out of the front of the church? <laughs> You know what I mean? It just doesn't seem right. It's weird. And then be like, um, um, what's your name? Uh, you're not on the list. Please head over to the ticket booth and uh, hang out for a little bit. He says in verse 8, do I say these things as mere man, as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? Hey, is this just my opinion on the matter, or is there biblical precedent? And yes, there is biblical precedent, and it's found in Deuteronomy Chapter 25, verse 4. And this is the verse that Paul references now in verse 9. 1 Corinthians 9 says, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? The reference here is to muzzling an ox so that he can't eat the grain as he is plowing the field. So the oxen is hooked up to the yoke and the farmer is leading the ox and they're tilling the ground. And he says, don't shut his mouth so that the ox can't eat a little bit of the corn or a little bit of the wheat that is coming off as he's working. You should not force close the mouth of an ox. God says that should not be done. But then you have to ask, but is it the oxen that God is concerned with alone? There is a great commentator and pastor, just phenomenal guy, named Warren Wearsby. On this passage, he wrote something along the lines of this. Since oxen cannot read, this verse was not written for them. (laughs) 
it appears that Wearsby agreed with the Apostle Paul because in verse 10, Paul says, or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope and he who threshes in hope should be partaker, should be a partaker of his hope. So are we going to starve those that are working so hard? Are we going to hold back God's blessings upon those that are plowing the fields of our hearts? All that we do for, for the Lord, regardless of our occupation, is going to be seen by Him. So we might even be able to take a step back and say, everything that we do in this life should be done for the Lord, regardless of our occupation. All that we should be doing for the Lord in any regard, any regard, any occupation, regardless if it's a spiritual occupation or if it's a material thing that we're, we're doing should be done for the Lord. Do it for the Lord. Because the Apostle Paul, he has needs. Ministers have needs. Their families have needs just like everyone else. And it's not right that pastors so often are impoverished and discouraged. I have known pastors in my life that collected food stamps. They collected food stamps because their church felt it their job to keep the pastor humble and the board felt it their job to keep him poor. And they had kids and they couldn't take care of themselves. It wasn't that the church didn't have the means to take care of them. They didn't. And that's not pleasing to the Lord. And it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written that he who plows should plow in hope and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. And if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? It is very right for the oxen to be taken care of, but how much so? How much more so the man that is serving the Lord? Their work is in the spiritual things, but they carry on practically through material things. They're able to live and take care of themselves financially in order to continue doing what they're doing. The Lord provides for the sparrows. He provides for the oxen. He's concerned with them, and he takes care of the pastor. In the Old Testament, the priests were taken care of. Part of the meat offering that was offered unto the Lord, the priests took home with them so they'd have something to eat and for their family. Part of the flour offering that was brought in as an offering to the Lord was taken home by the priests, and the priests lived by those things that were brought in. And that is the way that God established it to be so. Because the people, like you and me, we would offer our offerings to the Lord out of thanksgiving. Lord, you've provided for us, and we say thank you. And we give this thankfully and joyfully to you. And we receive that great blessing from the Lord for doing so. And then those that minister in spiritual things, like my pastor and other churches' pastors, are provided for by the Lord, and that was right. And that was a good thing. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, Paul wrote to Timothy and said, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. And so what he's saying to this group of people, he's, he, he's saying, do you understand how God has set these things up? And so we break it down from point number one being Paul the apostle, point number two, Paul the, la the laborer, and thirdly and finally now, Paul the minister. 
In verse 12, he says, If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. So though Paul had every right, he no doubt recognized then, even as it is today, that there are a lot of people who take advantage of people by constantly asking for money all the time and really pressuring the people into giving and forcing them and guilt tripping them and all this kind of stuff and it's not right and people have been turned off from the gospel because of people doing that kind of thing i remember i know i've been referencing pastor chuck a lot but i remember him telling a story about a certain man that would get up in that church's pulpit and say such things as this and i read this from his commentary and i'm quoting it The Lord has revealed to me that there are 10 people here tonight that are going to give $1,000 for this ministry. The Lord has revealed to me that there are 50 people that are going to give $500. End of quote. People have been turned off to the gospel because of that. You know, it's like when the the offering, you know, plate comes by and, you know, and, and there's the usher and maybe you didn't put anything in the bag and they just sit there and tap you on the shoulder with it. Until, until you cough up, so to speak. This kind of things are not right. People have been turned off to the gospel because of this kind of pressuring of people and such. You know, you get a, a pew with a, a gold plaque with your name on it if you give X amount. You know, you get, you get a brick with your name on it in the foundation of the building because this is the building fund or, you know, whatever it might be, you name it. Uh, that's why I feel like at Vision City Church it's been so important for us to have a biblical view on such things and that we don't pressure or ask for people's money. You hear Ryan say, hey, you know, there's a tithe box in the back or you can use the app or even one day when we have enough ushers, maybe it'll be, and the ushers will come forward to receive this morning's tithes and offerings. But that's the extent of it. People give willingly as an act of worship unto the Lord and it should never be something that's pressurized. In verse 13, it says, Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Verse 14, But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things, that it should be done so to me, for it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. So the Lord has commanded those that preach the gospel should live from the gospel. And Paul's saying, I have every right to be supported, but I'm not writing to appeal for any financial aid. He says in verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. If you're going into the ministry because you think you're going to receive something out of it, well, my compensation, you are not going to last. That's not the reason that you go into the ministry. He says, woe is me if I do anything other than tell people about who Jesus is. I don't care about the peripherals. The Lord said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these other things shall be added unto me. And seriously, that has to be the view. Because yes, there are practical needs. There's no way around it. You got to live, you got to eat, you got to have a roof over your head. And you know that those things are important, but God always takes care of his people. Always. Always. I can tell you the Lord always takes care of me, my wife and my kids. I have no idea 
how the Lord has done these amazing things. And, you know, having uh, insurance needs when I don't have insurance for my daughter and needs ankle things to walk, you know, and how somehow the Lord would provide for us and he would take care of us. He knows my needs. The Lord takes care of me, even as he knows your needs and the Lord takes care of you. I have to preach the gospel because it's burning inside of me. And I need to do that regardless of any financial outcome, Paul is saying here. I'm not in the ministry for the money, but woe is me if I do not minister the gospel. This might be ringing some bells for an Old Testament prophet named Jeremiah. In chapter 20, verse 9, Jeremiah said, I'm not going to talk about God any longer. Nor speak in his name. He said, I had it. I'm discouraged. As you know, Jeremiah never had one convert his entire ministry. Some might say, um, don't think you have the gift of evangelism, man. I don't think this is working out. I don't know if God has even called you. But then, as a side note, and this is for a time later, God doesn't view success the same way that we might. See, the greatest success that any Christian can ever accomplish or achieve is being obedient to what God has called him to do. And that's it. And that's it. Other people might stand on the outside and be like, hmm, what's this guy's deal or her? What's wrong with her? Be obedient to what God's called you to do. That is success in the eyes of the Lord. But he was discouraged. Jeremiah was discouraged. They're treating him terribly, and all this stuff was happening, and he says, I'm not going to say it anymore, I'm not going to preach anymore, but this is what he says in verse 9, Jeremiah 20, but God's word was in my heart like a burning fire, shut up in my bones, I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. I had to tell people, I had to proclaim the word of God. I'm not caring about this other stuff, this is what I'm created to do. I remember reading a story from Spurgeon's lectures to my students in which he told them, do not enter the ministry if you can help it. I believe it was also Warren Wiersbe who when approached by a mother who was trying to appeal uh, to him and, and said, hey, I really want my son to go into the ministry. Would you please talk to him and encourage him and tell him this is the right thing to do? He just said to the young man, if you can do anything else with your life, then do it. If you're called to the ministry to preach the gospel, to teach the word, you will not be able to hold it back. You will burn inside and say, I have to say something. If I'm talking to somebody and it's like, I actually have to, I would have to hold it back when it's like, hey, you know what? You need to know about Jesus and how much he loves you, blah, blah, blah. Like you have to like kind of put the cap on that. You be obedient to what God's called you to do. And he says in verse 17, for if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if I do it against my will, I've been entrusted with a stewardship. And I think this is cool to hear from the perspective of the Apostle Paul. Hey, I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, meaning maybe sometimes I don't feel like it, I realize that I'm actually responsible for this and I take my responsibility serious enough to do it even when I don't feel like it. I've been entrusted with a stewardship. And so he says in verse 18, as we wrap up here, last two verses, what is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge. That I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Because some do abuse their position, but that is not the case with Paul. 
Someone receiving the invitation to come and speak, and this happens even to this day, the first thing out of their mouth is, uh, what's the budget? That's a wrong heart to have. Somebody asks you to do something for the Lord, and the first thing that you say is, um, what's, the, what's the kickback? That's wrong. He says in verse 19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And that's it right there. That's it right there. The mark of a true servant of the Lord is the desire to see men come to salvation. I have a desire to see people come to know him. This is what Paul is saying here. The mark of a true minister of the Lord is to see the church strengthened and to be built up in the Lord. Not to create more followers for himself, not to boost his Twitter follower feed, not any of that. It's to see people follow Jesus, to point people to the Lord. And that should be the goal and the aim for each and every one of us, that we do what we do unto the Lord, knowing that if I seek the Lord first, he takes care of all of my needs. So as we, co- as we close, Paul is free to receive those things that are entitled to him, yet he has made himself the servant that he might be able to help more people. And that's it. And may that be the case with all of us. May that be the case with our church. May we be able to provide things and help with people and do stuff that we can possibly do as much as is within our power, all for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for this time, Lord, of just gaining a little bit of an insight to the other side of the coin, so to speak, Lord. And Lord, I ask that today you would help us in everything that we decide to do, that we put our hand to do, Lord, that it would be done for your glory. Lord, I ask that we would do those things willingly, Lord, and that we would do those things with a willing heart. And Lord, even if that is not the case, may you please work in our hearts and may we continue to choose what's right and to trump our emotions by your word, Lord, knowing what we do is for you and for your glory. And so, Lord, we ask for your blessings to be upon us. We ask that you would continue to strengthen this body called Vision City Church, Lord, just part of the body of Christ. And we ask, Lord, for all of these things in Jesus' name.